Thank you for um, worshiping the Lord this morning. I pray you were blessed. If you have kids and you want to send them back to the classes back there, you're welcome to. And I say this every week, but if you want to keep them with you, that's totally fine too. We're, we're okay with loud kids. You don't have to worry about keeping everything perfect. There's nothing that's perfect except Jesus. So I think people sometimes take the decently in order so far that you can't even do anything but like twiddle your thumbs and you better not let anybody else see you do that either, right? Um, I think we should respect the word of God. I think that, you know, church should be a place where we honor the Lord, but I think God knows we're human. <laughs> and I think we're expect to walk with each other in our weaknesses, amen? So we're okay with that. Uh, before we be, begin, can we do something? Can we pray for Israel? Are you guys good with that? So let's just pray. Father, we just lift up um, the people of the Lord, the, your, your chosen people, where they're at right now. Father, I pray every one of them would, would just find themselves under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. Uh, Lord, that you would open their eyes to be able to see their Messiah. And that even through some of these troubles that though we don't wish them, but Lord, if they're happening, that maybe you can use them according to your word to bring forth something greater. And we pray for protection over those who are fighting for their families and their loved ones. <clears throat> and Lord, I pray more than anything that their hearts would cry out, that where are you, Lord? And that Jesus, you would show yourself as Emmanuel, that you've always been God with them. Lord, I pray for um, the nation for have, to have peace because you instruct us to pray for that. that. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, we pray for the people who, um, who are being wounded on both sides. We pray, Father, that, that um, everybody over there in this conflict would have peace with Messiah. Muslims, Palestinians, Jews, that they would find Jesus. Lord, we pray that um, your heart would be satisfied over the people in that region, that they would all come to the saving knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, that the, the reign of the Lord would come upon both Jacob and Ishmael. Lord, that your plan would come to pass for all men, that you long for all men to be saved. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for allowing us to participate in praying. We ask, Father, specifically that you would open the eyes of your people. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. All right, so um, welcome. Um, if, you're, if you're new, we're, we're at the very end of a very long series. I'm not sure exactly how long, but it's been over a year and a half at least. Going um, verse by verse through Ephesians. That takes a minute, Amen. <laughs> um, I pray you guys have been blessed because we're, we're, we're about to wrap it up. And I pray it changed your heart. I pray it changed your mind. I pray it showed you the importance of God's mind through the mastery of Paul and the apostolic teaching of the church of Jesus and what it's supposed to represent. All the nuances that come through that mindset of Paul, that, that apostle who called himself the wise Master builder. The church has to be built. Do you understand that? The foundation is Christ. That can't be replaced. Nobody can replace that foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of, of God. But upon that, the Bible is very specific that we must be built. Paul says that we need to be very careful about how we build. Because what we build upon in our life is what we're judged upon in the next. It's one thing to rejoice in the foundation. It's quite another confident level to be able to rejoice in what you've built on that foundation. 
Theology alone is not good enough because theology in its very essence, the word breaking down in itself is nothing more than the study of God. (laughs) But when you're using a carnal mind to study a deity who cannot be understood, you come up with some problems along the way. Theology is only as strong as the mind in which it's studied in. If the mind is not renewed and it's not like Christ, if it's not the mind of Christ, then every essence of theology will be skewed. This is why we have so many denominations and different people who believe different things. Even so much so, they'll agree on some very foundational basics, but they'll completely go against the word of God itself and dividing itself from one another, breaking apart the unity that Jesus died to give over things that he never intended us to divide over. So in other words, sometimes people hold so true to their theology, they end up breaking the church apart that has its very essence in the theology they're studying. Does this make sense to you? I really believe it's time for the church to stop representing herself on what she disagrees with. I do not want at the end of my life to people, for people to know more about what I disagreed with than what I believed in. Critics are cheap. And they sow discord. If you study most of the verses in the New Testament that have any indication of rebuke, correction, or otherwise, it's mostly written in the pastoral books. In other words, the idea is not that we go out and find everybody we disagree with and try to correct them. Most of the time, people who are doing the correction don't have the authority to correct. Just because you differ with somebody's theology doesn't give you the right to correct their theology. I'm sorry. Even Jesus didn't start correcting things in his disciples' lives until he had relationship with them. How many of you guys know that if you walk up to somebody blind on the street and try to correct them, they're probably not going to listen? How important is relationship in the iron sharpening iron idea of life? Without relationship, rebuke can't be trusted. If you really disagree with somebody and you really want them to change, my suggestion is that you build a relationship with them before you begin to speak to them. Or you'll never gain anyone. The only people you'll gain are the people who already believe like you. Congratulations, you started another cult. Jesus came down to know what we were like. I say this very lightly, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. God knows what's in mankind. God knows everything about mankind in the sense that he created mankind, but there was one part of mankind he didn't know anything about, and that was to be one. God did not know what it was like to be under a fallen human race. God, before Jesus, did not know what it was, was to suffer hunger, He did not know what it was to have to defecate, urinate, be stressed, undergo difficulty, things that were humiliating. The very construct of fallen humanity is a humiliating process. And God underwent that process to know exactly what we had to go through so that he could redeem us in every way, shape, fashion, and form. Jesus was intimate with our sufferings, yet he disagreed with us thoroughly. And if we can't be intimate with each other's journey in our disagreements, yet learn to walk with somebody, our gospel is incomplete because of our fallen theology. We are so hell-bent on having everything perfect and without flaw and failure that we are embarking on an impossible journey ourselves. Everywhere you look, you're going to find something wrong. It takes a man of God, a woman of God, to find something right. Jesus tells a story of a parable of a man who found a pearl in a field. You know how you have to go digging through dirt to find pearls, right? Pearls don't just lay on the surface of the ground. See, we think that that story is, is that we found Jesus and we have to go sell everything. No, you didn't find Jesus. I'm sorry. You're not that clever. (laughs) You didn't find God. God's never lost. 
The story is, is that the man in the story is Jesus. He left everything he had and he sold everything he had in heaven to be able to come down here, dig through our dirt and find the pearl in our life. And do you know that it takes time to be able to dig through someone's dirt to find the pearl? And if you don't stay long enough, you're going to get some dirt underneath your fingernails and just persist through it and know that there's got to be something good in them. I've got to find it. You're never going to have the mind of the Lord. The mind of the Lord does not operate on what is wrong. It operates on what is right. Jesus is fully confident in his blood to cover the things that are wrong. And if you're not as confident in the blood of Christ for your brother, then I'm wondering where your mind is in the Lord. When you tear people apart because of their false theologies or whatever you think they might have, you're missing your opportunity to save one pulled from the fire. How do you do that? The same way Jesus did, through relationship. You convince them, I love you. I'm here for you. I can love you and disagree with you. Some people say that's impossible. And I, th I think, why is that impossible? Because Jesus does that every day with me. I think every day there's things I do that he disagrees with. Yet he's still Emmanuel. His name never changes. And it's his faithfulness to me and my stupidity that causes me, causes me to want to come out of it. We think we can speak a, che a cheap word at somebody in an antagonistic way, and then we're mad at them because we, they don't listen. I wouldn't listen either. There's one thing sure about humanity is if you want to entrench somebody in what they believe, attack it without relationship. If I came to you and had no relationship with you and I started attacking what you believe, you're not going to go, oh, brother, I'm so glad the Lord sent you in my life. Oh, man, I've just been wrong all these years. Thank you so much. Not going to happen. Sorry. Nobody in here is that humble. Because <laughs> we don't think we're wrong. It takes relationship to prove what is right. And when what is right is proven, we honestly, we, in, we organically let go of what is wrong. With me so far, how does that apply to Ephesians 6, 17? Because that's where we're at. The helmet of salvation is the mind of God. And within the mind of God, we find the operating process of the Christian. If we operate our Christianity out of our fallen mindset, we end up with confusion and fragmentation every time. The helmet of salvation is not a momentary issue of being saved it's not the salvific moment you came into reality, though that can apply. The helmet of salvation is something that you wear, and it's something you think, and it's become a part of who you are just by the process of breathing. You are living a saved life. Not from hell, but from everything Adamic. Every old thought process, every old emotion, every old plan and attack and, 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 and trap of the devil. You recognize it because your mind is stayed on Messiah. It's a lifestyle. It's not a moment. Somebody thinks that, you know, well, I have the helmet of salvation because I've been saved. Well, then why do you have so many demonic thoughts running through your head? You either have the mind of Christ, like the scripture says, or you do not. And if you do not, you need to get saved. And if you have the mind of Christ and you're not utilizing it, that's rebellion. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. You choose to think what you think upon. The Bible says, set your thoughts. God's not going to do that for you. On things. How many times do we not do that and end up in a hole? How many times do we not do that in our families and we wreck something? How many times do we not do that in our marriages and we destroy and break something because we're looking on things below? What we're saying is, is that I want to accuse you the same way the devil does so that you'll change. Accusation never brings someone to conviction. Never. Conviction always stirs the heart of a human and desires God. 
They want to run out of the darkness and into the light. Accusation causes them to run from the light into the darkness. So take the helmet of salvation. It's something you and I have to do. You have to take it. Are you with me? When you're involved in spiritual warfare and fighting against demons and principalities and powers of darkness, <clears throat> you need your mind protected. Because within the mind is where all sin is born. You won't start talking bad about somebody until after you've thought bad about them. It's true. You'll always know when you get somebody around somebody who's negative, who's really, really negative, where their mind's at. Out of the heart. What gets into the heart comes from the head. So the word salvation here in Greek literally means to be delivered and to embody salvific reality. To be delivered. From what? Anything that's not like Christ. So the mindset of the mind of Christ is this, that when you go into battle, you already know you're going to be delivered. It's not a question. So many saints get into war and then they pray to be delivered. Whereas Jesus walked into war knowing he already was. It's a big difference. The mind of God has no capacity for failure. It understands exposure, but exposure is not failure. The mind of God knows that when it goes into battle, it is dressed with victory. It cannot lose. Yet on the outside, it looks like nothing but loss. And this is where the mind of Christ was, is that it held itself in the darkest moment of its life because it saw something that came after. Because its mind was on the things that were above, not on what was happening. And this is the helmet of salvation, that when we undergo trial and tribulation, we embody the salvific thing that God placed inside of us. And we demonstrate it by not wavering by what we see. Whether it's in someone else or in ourself, in our pastors, in our parents, it doesn't matter because we're not moved by the mind of man. The literal mindset of the believer is victory. Can you understand now that when we couple all of the other elements of the armor of God that we've talked about already into this one, when we walk into all those things we've looked at, we can come into this thing completely unable to be moved. Which is why Paul uses the word stand four times in the chapter. You're not fighting for victory. You already have it. And I know we think we know that. And I know we can shake our heads and say amen. But how do you know you have the mind of Christ? Whenever you get pinched, you organically come to the... <laughs> The overflow of, thank you, Father. I don't know how, but I know you will. Does this make sense? Because even if it's your time to die, you will not waste it on the devil. I remember hearing of a missionary one time who got into a place where it was really bad. They pretty much decided, it was like five or six of them, they were going to die. They weren't going to get delivered. They were going to be killed. They were in the jungle. And they were being chased. And they finally stopped. And I was like, you know what, guys? We're, we're done. They said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the last few moments of our life praising Jesus. We're not going to let the devil take our death. We're not going to die in fear. If we're going to die, we're going to die in worship. We're going to make the devil see us praising God 
as he takes our life. He will take nothing from us. And that's what they began to do. They began to sing him and they began to praise and they began to worship God loud to the point where it's like they can't hide anymore. For some reason, the enemy never came. There's an amazing thing about the mind of Christ to know that whatever battle we fight, we've already been saved from. You don't have to pray for deliverance in the middle of battle. You've already been delivered. The helmet of salvation is to be saved perpetually, thoroughly, and continually. That you can't be anything other than saved. Saved in conflict, saved in battle, saved in distress, saved in poverty, saved in sickness. There is nothing that can take you out except for death. And even that, Paul says, where is its sting? When we walk like this, we know that no matter what happens to us, it will work for the good of God who works through us. Therefore, we cannot lose. So it doesn't matter how much it looks like we have lost. What matters is, do we have the mindset of God to see resurrection when we're being crucified? One thing that I want you to understand is that in, when Paul's referring to the, the helmet in, in the Roman culture there, he's writing to people who are very familiar to that. The helmet also established identity, but one, thing, one of the things it did is it established unity in battle. Whenever someone was getting overrun by some army or whatever, and another soldier saw that helmet, which usually was very dynamic and had a crest on it, depending on which way, and which color, it determined rank. It determined how high you were in the Roman army. And honestly, the mind of Christ also determines rank in the Christian life. If you see somebody with a weak mind and a negative mind, their rank is not that great in the kingdom. The devil knows he can kick them around the block for two weeks every time they screw up and they're not going to stand. And if they can't stand for themselves, how are they going to stand for someone else? In fact, most Christians are nothing more than tools of the devil. See, the devil can't speak out loud, but he can use your tongue. How many times have you attacked your husband and your wife in your marriage? How many times have you been the voice of, of, of darkness in your own home? You think Jesus would ever do that? Oh, but you got good theology though, don't you? Ouch. That's how that works. It, it promoted unity. So when, some, when one army was being attacked and another soldier began to see that there was a person with a proper helmet on representing proper authority, rallying and gathering certain troops. There was a confidence level that was being built. Why? Because one Roman soldier began to understand that another Roman soldier thinks the same way. They've been trained by the same army and they're going to operate the same way in battle. And I can trust what's going on over there. I don't have to pick it apart. I can focus on what I'm doing. And I wish we could have that in the church. And I go, I could look at somebody and be like, you know what? I may disagree with some of the things that they're doing or saying, but you know what? I believe they have the mind of Christ and I can trust that the God will use them. And I have some people all the time. It's like, well, what do you believe about that person? And this, there's and this doctrine, that, and that. It's like, you know what? Have you never read your Bible? Like, first of all, it doesn't matter what I think because I have no authority over those people. Zero. It doesn't matter what I think. If I tell you what I think, I'm just promoting discord. But second of all, don't you read what Paul says? Like some people actually go out and preach Jesus from wrong meat for wrong reasons. They do. From, through the wrong spirit, through the wrong heart, through, through ways to actually, even some ways he was inferring that they were preaching Jesus to, to mock him. He's like, I don't care. At least Jesus is being preached. Why can't we put some of those things to bed and stop worrying about what everybody else is doing out there and you take care of the battle that's right in front of your face? You got people wanting to argue about <laughs> head coverings and they've never discipled one person in their entire life. 
please don't. I'll get hot. Stuff really makes me upset. That's just my flesh. I'm working on that. I'm sorry. First Corinthians chapter two. I want to look at this real quick. It says this in verse 15, the one who is spiritual discerns all things. But he himself is discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who will instruct him? But we, not you, not I, we, you get the, you get the plurality? Okay, you can't quote that I have the mind of Christ because it's actually not biblical. We have the mind of Christ. You alone have a peace, not the whole. I alone have a peace, not the whole. Collectively, we represent beautifully the mind of the Lord. And if you're attacking one part of the mind of God, you're attacking yourself. Because you cannot separate things that Jesus has put together. This is marriage talk, yet we are the bride. Many parts, one body, or one. Think of that next time you used to want to get critical about somebody who believes in Messiah. You're literally attacking a piece of yourself. You're, or at, 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 at best, you're attacking his bride. I don't suggest, fellas, you touch anybody's woman. This doesn't, it's not smart. God put in every man this innate desire to murder, if need be. I may go to prison, but I'll just start a prison ministry. That's how it works. But you don't touch Jesus' bride. He's, you're his bride. We need to close our mouths, open our hearts. We have the, the mind of Jesus. Why is this important to, 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 to Ephesians 6? Because the helmet of salvation is, is placed on the mind. And the mind of God understands this thing is bigger than just one person. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your theology. It's bigger than your opinions. It's bigger than your experiences, which you base a lot of things on. If your Christianity is based on your experience, you have a small version of God. John 14, 12 exists for a reason. Greater things you would do. And if you only exist within the realm of your experience, you're missing the thing that God said we would have after he left. But if you're not open to those things because your theology isn't open to those things, then I'm sorry, I don't understand. You know, I have a lot of people say all the time, well, if it's, I mean, I, trust me, if it's, I'll say this, if it's not in the book, we shouldn't be doing it. However, there are things that aren't in the book that Jesus allows us to operate in. Not everything's in the book. You can't sit there and say, well, there's a verse about watching television. It's just not there. Do you understand that in, in Acts, it says God worked special miracles by the hands of, what does it say? doesn't say God, doesn't say Jesus. It says God worked special miracles by the hands of Paul. In other words, Paul had already started walking into things that weren't biblical according to, to Torah. He prayed over handkerchiefs, sent them out, and people were healed. Some people say, oh, well, Jesus did that when the woman reached out for his rope. No, no, that was a statement of faith because according to the Hebrew people, the Messiah, when he came, would have power in his robe or his tzitzit. In other words, if I touched him, I, I, if he's, I'm acknowledging him as Messiah. And that sozo salvation is what healed her body. What Paul did had never been done before. So I can see a lot of modern people going, well, that's not biblical. Well, when John 14, 12 exists and you will do greater things than even Jesus has done, how do, how do you biblically apply that? I don't understand. Like everything at that point is not biblical. Do I believe in biblical? Absolutely. Like you guys who know me know that if it's not in this book, like that's how we live our lives. But I also leave room for God to be God. Not in some weird, funky way, but in truth and in spirit in ways that reflect his nature, his condition, his character, who he's said to be, and that Jesus is the defining factor of all things. 
but we have to leave room for God to be God. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your... How many of us do that? I mean, you can say in this room, honestly, that you love God with all your thoughts. All, not, not some, not most, but all. All. I'm not there. 100% not there. But this is the word of the Lord. This is the greatest commandment, that you love God with all your mind. This is the helmet of salvation. That we love God in our thoughts. And if we're loving God in our thoughts, we can't hate our brother in our thoughts. And you know what we can't do? We can't hate ourselves in our thoughts. Self-hate is an attack on God love. Because you can't hate what God loves and be one with him. You can't. If God loves you and you don't love yourself, then there's already a disconnect in the relationship. Now, I want you to, uh, let's, let's turn there, if you can turn there. Mark chapter 14, verse 72. See, we need to start, this is why I said at the beginning before I, we, we even started worship, we need to remember. Remembrance has to do with our mind. It has to do with our thoughts. It has to do with the salvation that God has brought and worked in us. We remember what God has said when things get hard. This is part of the mind of Christ. And we also remember that we're not the only person in the story, that your troubles and your, your struggles and your trials are oftentimes for someone else. That God is leading you through a specific Egypt so that way you can be the deliverance they need when you meet them. But if you're so engrossed and self-focused in what you've done or what somebody's hurt you with or what you've had to go through, you're going to miss the reality that somebody's praying for you to come into their life and lead you, lead them through this. And if you're not going to answer that prayer because of your self-focus, God will raise up somebody else. People are praying for deliverance. They don't even know it. In their heart, they're like, God, I wish there was some other, other way. I wish things were different. And this is the word where, where in, the, in the Bible where God says he hears their heart. He hears their cry. The cry of the heart of people. They may never say it with their lips, but their hearts are saying, I wish I was healed. I wish I didn't have to go through this. I wish someone could help me. The mind of Christ knows. Let me say it this way. I've, I've said this a lot, of, a lot of times, but let me, let me say it this way. It was Jesus's hunger in the wilderness that gave him the authority to feed the multitudes. How many of you want to be hungry? No, no, no. I'm not like 40-day fast hungry. If you raise your hand, I feel sorry for you. I've done those twice. It's not fun. Don't recommend it unless God says. Um, my, my point is, is that when we go through hard times and situations, they're not for us. Jesus went through that wilderness for us, not for himself. You, what purpose does he have to go through the wilderness for himself? He's already perfect. He's already above the demon he's going to fight. He's already above that. There's nothing there that's about him. Nothing. Nothing he went through was about himself. It was always about you and me and his father. That's the mind of God. That's the helmet of salvation that you develop this mindset that it's not about me. It's not what about I'm going through. It's for my father first and for my brothers and sisters next. How can I lead somebody through this thing? Sometimes you have to be raised in Pharaoh's house to be able to deliver people from it. Everybody wants to talk about how bad religion is, but if nobody goes through the, the factor of it, nobody knows how to get people out of it. That's why so many times people have told me, you've helped me so much in my life. And it's like, it's because I was raised in the same house. From the time I was eight years old, raised up in religion. I know all the Christianese and the sayings and this. I've heard it all. They're, they're, literally, literally. I think there's only been maybe one or two sermons in my entire life that, I, that I, I've heard. And I'm like, wow, I've never heard that before. I, there's nothing new out there. It's all been regurgitated. Nothing can replace the word you hear from God personally. 
whether it's through a man or not, it comes from the Lord. We need to remember, did you get to Mark 14? Okay, good. Second time the rooster crows, you guys know the story, right? Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Some, some translations say, Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Let me show you what religion will do to you. Let me show you a mindset that's under the power of religion. Because religion will tell you as long as you're thinking scripture that you're thinking biblically. My problem with that is, is that when the demon himself came at Jesus, who was the word, he used the word. The word is not always used in the life, breath, pneuma, spirit it should be used in. Are you with me? The devil quotes scripture all day long. He remembered what Jesus had said to him. Here's what, Jesus, here's what he remembered what Jesus said. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And thinking on this, he began to weep in anguish. Let me ask you this. Those of you know your Bibles, is that all that Jesus told him? See, now you're starting to follow me, right? What else did Jesus say that he didn't remember? May I remember what Jesus told him? I, he said, nonetheless, I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you're converted, go and strengthen your brethren. Do you know what he didn't remember? The most important part. See, the demon will tell you what Jesus says without the restoration part of it. He'll use the requirement of God without the restoration of God. And this is how you know you have an unrenewed mind, that you're thinking scripture incomplete to the nature of who God is. God did not leave him there. Why did not he have this understanding to remember the most important part of the word of God in his mind? Because his mind wasn't renewed. He wasn't convinced of the nature of God in restoration. You follow me. When we wear that type of thought, that type of helmet, and we go into battle, we don't remember just the part where the devil says you're going to fail. We remember the part where Jesus says, you've already been restored. Can you imagine what would have happened if he would have remembered the second part of that verse? I don't believe he would have went out and wept in anguish. There's no indication here that this was a repentance-type weeping. Because he didn't repent until later. When did he repent? When he saw Jesus and Jesus restored him. That's when he changed his mind. There's no indication that this was a repentance issue. It was a grief, accusation, failure issue. Think of it. You followed Jesus for three and a half years. You heard him. You were with him. You whacked off a guy's ear for him. I mean, you're with him. And at the last minute, you, not him, not Peter, you betray him. You sell him out like everybody else. Three times, no matter. You think you're going to go, oh, well, he, it's okay. What, what are you going to be feeling in that moment? Here's how we know it wasn't a conviction type repentance. It says he ran out into the darkness. Like he, he went away. What happened in Genesis chapter 1? or three, whenever Adam and Eve sinned. They ran away from God. Any indication of somebody running from God is usually underneath the, the, the voice of accusation. When you see people run from church, run from you, run from God, stay isolated, they stop showing up, you, can, you don't have to be a prophet. Somewhere in their life, they are under condemnation. Somewhere in their life, they're under Failure. Their own problems, their own stuff, their own things they've done to themselves. They begin to isolate, run from God. It's exactly what Peter did. Having a mind that's underneath the helmet of salvation understands everything Jesus has said. And it holds on to the parts where he says, I've already prayed for you. What's the Bible say? That he's the author and the See, some of us, most of us have the idea that he authored our faith. We have that down in our theology. But most of us are very unsure about how it's all going to end. When it says he's both. 
Do you realize that God exists outside of time, that he's already seen you live your life? Such a weird thought. Such a weird thought. It's actually how I use certain apologetic um, recourses to, to certain things about how God can make certain vessels for destruction. It's like, well, he already saw the whole thing happen and he watched it happen four or five times and he just let people be who they were already gonna be. They chose it and so then therefore he declared it because he saw he lives outside of time. Time doesn't dictate him. He's the author and the finisher. Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. How does that happen? I don't know, but it did. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We're trying to understand God through this little three pound piece of gray matter that we trust more than his word. His word's eternal. The Adamic gray matter is not. Are you with me? How come we can't remember what Jesus said in, the, in those moments? See, in every battle that God gives you, there is a promise. The devil's job is to blind you to it so all you can see is where you failed. The helmet of salvation tells you you're okay. You're saved, not just from hell, but from this situation. You're saved. You embody victory. Imagine if your faith actually grabbed a hold of that. Depression would fall off of you in an instant. See, in verse 32 in Luke 22, it says, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. How many of you guys would have actually looked at Peter and said, well, Jesus didn't get what he asked for. Your faith failed. Anybody? I mean, if, you, if that would have been you, you'd be like, well, I, I, guess that, I guess Jesus was wrong. How many of you guys would have put Samson in the heroes of faith? Anybody? I wouldn't have. Absolutely not. But he's there. How many of you guys read where Paul, or the author of Hebrews, talks about how Abraham did not stumble in his faith concerning God? It's like, okay, Hello? Have you not read the book? He definitely stumbled. But see, what God defines as reality is reality, not what you and I define as reality. What God says is real is what's really real. So did, did Peter's faith not fail? According to God, his faith never failed. But according to Peter, his faith failed. Let me ask you this. According to you, did your, has your faith failed you at some point in your life or... Or has it not? Do you think Peter was special? Think Jesus didn't pray for you too? He's called the great what? Intercessor? He's still making intercession? What do you think he's praying about? That the birds and, 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 and animals would be okay and not suffer? He's praying about you. Are you, are you following me so far? Can you see how this works in battle? You see how the helmet protects you? How you, when you get into these things, you're not moved or swayed? But I, I warn you, you walk in this kind of confidence and religious people are gonna call you arrogant. I quoted it a minute ago, but it's Isaiah 55, 8. And he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. If you carry on with that verse, this, that chapter, it says, as the rain comes down, the snow from heaven returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It will prosper the thing that I sent it. It will go out with joy. You'll be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing. All the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Verse 13, instead of the thorn will come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar will come up the myrtle tree. And, the, and it shall be to the, to the name of the word of the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. This is what the word of God does. Your thoughts don't do this type of thing. But here's, when it gets down to that bottom 
verse. God starts to say, here's what my word is. It's higher than you. It's above you. But here's what it does. It creates something else in your life. Instead of thorns, it creates something else. It creates something else. Right? It takes you out of death into life. (laughs) Here's what the mind of God understands. Here's what this helmet of salvation understands. I was thorns, but now I'm a myrtle tree. You guys know what myrtle trees are? They're usually indicative of of multiple trees coming up at one time and they grow together over time and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and their leaves get so powerful and they take a hundred years to even get mature. But it's usually the the, the, the idea of many, many small trees coming together and like growing out of each other from the root and strengthening and wrapping around each other. Is there any kind of significance to the body of Christ in that? But here's, here's the thing. Let's take context into this in Isaiah to John chapter 15. Here's what Jesus says. I am the vine and you are the branches, right? So we're in him. Is that right? We have life in him. Thank God. So we're connected to him. But here's what he says. Every branch that's in me that does not bear fruit is cut away. We won't go into that. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so it can bring forth more fruit. How many of you have ever been through one of those? That does not feel like growth. If you've never been through one, you better find somebody who has because you're going to need it. I promise you, you will fall apart when he cuts you down to nothing. Oh, it's terrible. So, so what do you do? You're faithful to God. Everything's going great. You've been faithful to the Lord all your life. And all of a sudden, everything starts going wrong. Everything's ripped away from you. Everything's pulled apart. Everything's destroyed. Everything, nothing looks like it did. What kind of helmet do you have on in that moment? See, here's what the helmet of salvation does. It, under, it teaches you the ways of the Lord, not just his acts. The devil wants you to continue to get you to pray for the acts of God without actually knowing the ways of your father. It's a way of God to cut off things that are prosperous so that they can become more prosperous. But when you're getting cut off, if you don't have the right mindset, you don't know who your father is and how he works, you're gonna think it's the devil. Do you know how many Christians I know that actually rebuke God thinking it's the devil when God's cutting things out of their life? I rebuke you, Satan. And God's up there going, honey, it's not Satan. It's me. It's me. And you don't know me because if you did, you'd know it was me. See, the mind of Christ understands the ways of God. The mind of Christ understands it takes a cross to bring forth resurrection. Nobody's, everybody's okay with resurrection. Nobody wants the cross. Everybody's okay with bearing fruit. Nobody wants to get pruned. The ways of God teach you the ways of your father and condition your mind when you're in those things to know that this thing will bring forth fruit. And I know it because I've been through it. Is it hard? Oh, it's so hard. You're going to need people to hold you and pray for you and hold you up and and gird up underneath you. But you know what? (laughs) When it comes out the other side there, people are going to go, I want your anointing, brother. And you're like, no, you don't. Just give me a double portion of suffering. Sure, I'll pray for you right now. You understand what I'm saying? That the mindset of, of a godly man, a godly woman, knows that there will be times where pruning will come. And I've said this before, but when they prune those grapes like that, man, you'll have this beautiful grapevine that stretches out like 40, 50 feet. And they whack it two inches from the ground. I mean, it, the stump on the thing is huge because it's so old. And they'll, they'll whack it off a couple inches off the ground. And you're like, what in the world are you doing? But guess what? In two years, that thing will produce more fruit than it ever has in its entire life. Why? Because it takes a certain shock to the system for people to go, I need to do something with my life. The nature of that grapevine is to bear fruit. And so whenever it feels like it's going to die, it says, I need to bear more. And this is the way of the father. I don't have time for that one. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 8 says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There's a reason the word hope is used in there. Because when you're in the midst of battle, that's what you're, you're working in hope. You're hoping the character of God will come through. But here's how it works. Oh, I'm gonna pass that one up. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of his promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed the covenant the, the, uh, with an, a promise or an oath so that by two unchangeable things, one in which it's impossible for God to lie, whom we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast into the hope that was set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to our soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hope is an anchor to your soul. Your soul in the Bible is your mind. It says, let's just put on the helmet of hope, basically. That we're hoping in the power and the resurrection and the condition and the character of our God. It's an anchor in a storm. It holds you. You hope in God. You hold that in every battle of your, of your life. Why? Romans 5, 2, it says, by whom also we have access by faith into his grace where we stand, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we, listen to this, we glory in tribulations also. That's the mind of Christ. Do you do that? Do I do that? Do we do that? We glory in tribulations. Why? Because tribulation has a work. What's the work that tribulation does? What's the work? Does anyone remember? It works patience. People say, oh, I need more patience. If you're praying for patience, you're praying for tribulation. I, I always tell people, don't pray for more patience. Pray for love, because love is patient. You pray for patience, you get tribulation. Just pray for love. Safer that way. Knowing that tribulation works patience, and guess what? Patience works experience. People think experience is not, they think experience doesn't matter in the gospel. They think, oh, it's just charisma, it's anointing, it's dynamics. That's what we need. No, we need experience. We need people who are experienced in the trail of Jesus Christ. Why? Because experience brings hope. Why? Because you've been through it before. Oh, this seems familiar. <laughs> this, I went through some, yep. Oh, what happened? Oh, he came through for me. Oh, he'll do it here too. Oh, there's another one. There's another one. Another one five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, two years ago, two months ago, two weeks ago. It's all the same. His nature is the same. He's always come through for me. He's always come through for me. And then your hope starts stirring and it gives you an anchor to control your mind. It's going, ah! freak out. And you're like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Be still my soul. Hope. And it says, hope will not make you ashamed. God will not put you to shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy spirit, which he's given to us. When you were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why is that last part even important to that? Because the, the very salvation and the death of Jesus was given to you in your most weakest hour. How much more will the strength of God be given to you after you've received him? If all of his greatness was given to you before you even came into the family, how much more will it be when you're in his family? I say it this way. <clears throat> Jesus will protect the life he died to save. Are you with me so far? I'm going to close. I want you to ask yourself concerning your own story. Most of us would probably write a negative version that I failed here. I failed there. I didn't, I didn't walk in faith here. I didn't walk in faith there. But God says something different about Abraham. So he did not stagger at the promise. 
And the story and the context in Romans 4 is this. And even though he was gonna lose the very thing he loved the most, he was okay. Because he had a promise. Part of the helmet of salvation is you and I remembering our promise. And you need to be so convinced of it that the next time the devil only reminds you half of what Jesus says, that you can finish the other half. If you can't finish the other half, you're listening to the wrong voice. The devil loves to speak the word of God. That's how he gets in our minds. But there's a character, there's a spirit behind the word that instantly when we hear it, we're like, that's not my father. My father leads me to restoration. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my, what's your soul? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. We need to understand our father. That's part of the helmet of salvation to know God, to walk in his mind, to have the mind of Christ. To know that suffering is only for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. When you condition yourself to these things, when things hit you, yeah, you're going to be human. It's going to be hard. Things will be tough. But you're going to pull yourself out of certain things and begin to encourage yourself in the Lord on the promises of God. And this is how you do battle. You don't fight the devil. You listen to the word of the promise. If you spend your whole time fighting the devil, you're, you're fighting somebody who's already been defeated. <laughs> You, you, you fight by hearing the word of the Lord and standing on what he said. How's he gonna get you through it? I don't know. That's not my job. I just know his faithfulness. That, like that song we sang earlier. All my life, you've been faithful. All my life, you've been so good. Can we sing that whenever we're being pruned? We're being downcast, beaten, ill-treated, treated, rejected, abandoned. Can you stay faithful? Guys, you'll want to quit. This is why community is so important. We have the mind of Christ. Connect with people who are godly people. Connect with them. We're still a small church, but you realize like maybe six or seven years ago, we, eight years ago even, we had a massive split and we were down to like three people. Everything, everything in my head said you need to quit. Just quit. You know what helped me the most? You got to find what holds you the most. But you know what helped me the most? It's this thought right here. I can't quit on the man who never quit on me. I can't quit on him. He didn't quit on me. I can't quit on him. So you find your promise. You find a place inside of you that gets down to the nitty gritty. Whenever you're reduced to nothing but just a few things in your life. That you can anchor in and say, I'm going to keep moving. I will not be moved. You can stand with me. I just want to take a moment, just close your eyes. And if this prayer applies, you can pray it in your own way. You don't have to repeat after me, but... Something to the effect of, Father, if I have thought things that are not of you and developed mental strongholds that are not of you, I ask you to tear them down. And Lord, I ask you to, rem to, to help me remember the word of the Lord and the promise of God. 
And I ask you to help me renew my mind. And I ask you to bring around me, brothers and sisters in the faith, to encourage me, to strengthen me, and that you would restore my hope, that the anchor of my soul would be set in the rock of Christ and his word. Lord, we love you. We need you more. I pray for everybody in here, willing and unwilling, that your, your love would just overshadow them. Overshadow them, God, because you, you are worthy of their life. I speak peace over you in Jesus' name. May the, our God and Father lead you and guide you in all his glory to fulfill his purposes and his plan for you. You are not an accident. You're not without purpose. You're not useless. You're not too young. You're not too old. There's purpose inside your soul. God, make it real to them. In Jesus' name, amen.